Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan J. Haraja and Babak Hayeri. Hey, everybody. It's been a busy beginning of the offseason with the coaching carousel spinning back up only a few days after the title game when Nick Saban, the greatest living coach, decided to hang up the clipboard. It's got us thinking about how the playoff has affected coaching searches, particularly with the arrival of the 12-team playoff. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where we're all about the college football playoff championship, the race for it, and the future of it as we are now in the offseason. I'm Bob Akairi, and I'm joined, as always, by Sean J. Araja, National College Football Writer for CBS Sports. You can find us on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show, where we have video highlights of the show, run polls, and listen to your feedback. Take a moment to like, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get your shows. We enjoy your reviews. If they're interesting, we might even talk about them on the show. So we're now a decade into the college football playoff era. Plenty of time and and material to look back on and think about how the dynamic of fighting for those four spots colored the coaching carousel. And at the dawn of the dozen team era, think about how things are going to change even further. I just want to take a second to recap the last week's coaching changes because and we don't have full answers to everything as of this recording on a Wednesday morning. Alabama, obviously, as I mentioned, Nick Saban retired. They begat or they took Washington's coach, Kalen DeBoer. Um, Washington, Washington then cast a line and got Jed Fish from Arizona. Um, Arizona then took San Jose State's Brent Brennan. So now San Jose State is an open position. South Alabama lost Kane Womack, who's now the defensive coordinator at Alabama. So South Alabama is now open. And Buffalo's open because their head coach was also uh, poached to join the Alabama staff. And we still have the 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 team we, we were more expecting to be talking about. Still, we're waiting to see what uh, Jim Harbaugh is going to do, if he's going to stay at Michigan or if he's going to take one of these NFL positions. He's now sounds like interviewed for at least two teams. Um, and we'll see where that goes. But as we dive into this, Shahan, what are your initial thoughts on on kind of the where we are? Coaching searches in the playoff era. Well, I think what's so interesting about this situation is that there are essentially going to be two cycles because one guy retired. And so we see, like you said, a change at Washington because of it. We see a change at Arizona. We see a change at San Jose State. We see a change at Buffalo. We see a change at South Alabama, all related to that one guy deciding he's ready to retire. And that says a lot about who Nick Saban is. It says a lot about the staff that Kalen DeBoer is assembling at Alabama, but it's crazy. And you know what happens as well, whenever this all happens is that whenever a coach leaves a job, it opens up a portal window for all of their players. But the flip side is that Alabama and Washington and Arizona and all these schools don't have the ability 
to take from other schools because the rest of the portal window has already come through. And so it's such a fascinating dynamic. It's, I mean, truly nothing like I think we've almost ever seen. For whatever you want to say about some of these changes a couple of years ago, right? I know that Oklahoma fans, for example, they, they gave Lincoln Riley hell for when he left and the players that entered the portal. The other side of that was that he left in late November. So it was before, you know, I think this was before we had official portal windows. But so he, he was able to, you know, uh, Brent Venables was able to come in and get a bunch of transfers to come back his way. That's not something that Alabama is going to have the ability to do, at least when it comes to getting players on campus before spring. Now, remember, there is a post-spring portal window. I would expect Alabama to be incredibly active during that window with adding players. I think that they'll, you know, like this is the reality of college football. They'll probably back channel with a lot of players during the spring period and try to uh, show that there's opportunity potentially at Alabama. And I want to be clear, too. They have a lot of good players coming back. Uh, you know, Jihad Campbell was one at, at uh, weak side linebacker, a great player for them. He said, I'm not leaving. Jalen Milrow has not entered the portal at this point. They still have good wide receivers. They still have good linemen. Uh, you know, Kate Proctor is one. And, and by the way, we're recording this uh, midday on Wednesday. More, more players might have entered the portal by the time you hear this. Yeah. But the timing of this is so weird. And this takes me kind of a step back, which is, the most broken thing about the sport is not NIL. It's not the transfer portal. It's not any of these things. It's the calendar. It, it, it's just the freaking yeah. calendar. We see, you know, back like uh, in, in 2021, right? We see LSU hire Brian Kelly and make him leave before he even knows if his team is in the college football playoff, which was a possibility that year. So the fact that like we are moving so fast that you have to already be worried about the next thing before you're even done with your current thing, that is a ridiculous, insane situation. Uh, I think the other part, too, that we have to think about is with Alabama and and let's say uh, as well with Michigan, let's just say Jim Harbaugh leaves. Nothing's happened as yet. He's interviewing for jobs. But if he leaves, well, again, the, the portal window will open up for Michigan's roster. They won't be able to pull kids back, most likely, because most are already shut off from being able to enter the portal. And so in a weird way, playing in the national championship game will actually be a huge disadvantage to Michigan and to Washington because their portal windows will open up so much later than everybody else's. And so it's a bizarre situation. Uh, it's the the issue with all of this is I don't know exactly what the answer is. Everybody's like, we'll just push back the portal windows until later. Maybe, you know, separate. I, I do think that uh, the early signing period should go. That's not something that should be going at the same time as everything else. But you are running into legitimate ad drop deadlines for classes, right? Where, where if a kid transfers to Alabama right now, like the drop deadline might have already passed. And so like you can't enroll at Alabama at this point as a university. So there's not a great answer to this question. I, I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? As an academic, by the way. <laughs> Does Alabama shift to a quarter system so they can kind of have better, more slots for people to fuck? Can you imagine an athletic department for foot, college football forcing more schools to go to a quarter system so that they can find better spots for, for players to kind of become athletes, I mean, students again. But I, 
I agree the calendar is broken, but I, I my approach to it is a little different. I, I decided I don't think it can be entirely fixed. So instead of becoming, instead of, and I'm not saying you're going too far in this, but instead of like some of the folks I hear who are decrying it as like the fall of whatever civilization, uh, it still supports guys. But, you know, I, I actually lean into it. I'm like, this is crazy. I love the chaos. I love the fact that it isn't great for reporting and having to worry about keep track of so many things. And certainly the head coaches have to keep track of so much. But as a fan, I really don't know what's going to happen next. I, I, you know, as a person who observes college football, like what's going to happen? Like if you're a person who enjoys a sport, you don't know if the players you're into are going to leave or you're suddenly going to get a good player. Granted, this is more in the favor of the top programs. So if you're a, a program that is always being poached, you're just constantly living in a fa- uh, maybe a state of fear. But I, I really think that at this point, we just have to kind of accept the fact that college football is messy, disorganized. I'm A lot of things I didn't think would happen have happened over the last few years in terms of making the sport more player-centric and, and giving them more opportunities. But I ultimately think this is truly like herding hundreds of cats at this point. I don't know if we'll ever be able to organize everyone. I don't think the NCAA has the wherewithal to do it. I mean, short of, and I grant the more I talk about it, there could be a situation where either what Charlie Baker proposed or some alternate proposal takes the top teams and puts them into their own division or their own conference, their own league, however you want to phrase it where they can kind of regulate all of this in a way that they all agree to. But even then, it is such a pain to get people to agree. I mean, imagine getting Notre Dame to agree to just anything or, or the Rose Bowl to agree to just anything. We've shown how this uh, how this sport just doesn't want to listen to each other um, unless things get completely desperate. I, I think the best move is to just ad- uh, just accept the fact that, yeah, this is completely broken and that's part of the charm. That is part of the charm. It's the same reason why uh, the the on-field play, for those of us who are really into college football, obviously, you know, us here and most of you listening, it's the fact that, you know, it is not a homogenous style of play, you know, that teams have to play differently based on their talent. Everyone is certainly not NFL caliber in college football, so mistakes happen and it may adds to the wackiness of the games. I think that's, we're going to have to accept it off the field too. That's, we're going to have to accept the fact that if you're a college football fan, the calendar is broken. Things are going to happen that don't make sense, and you just have to kind of uh, enjoy the ride. And it adds a little bit of chaos, a little bit of variability into all of it. Well, I think that another factor to take with this is, you know, again, the conversation is focused on Nick Saban and Alabama for obvious reasons. But this will potentially become a Jim Harbaugh conversation as well. And I think that what's also curious about this is that there has been more overlap between college and pro staffs in this era than in any I can remember in a long time. I can't I can't remember the name right now. Uh, USC just had, I believe it's Eric Henderson, the mm-hmm. Los Angeles Rams defensive line coach. He just joined in the same position, right? Because in some cases, there's as much or more money in college jobs as there are in pro jobs. So people go back and forth all the time. And we've seen this uh, even with, of course, uh, Matt Rule a couple of years ago at Baylor goes to the NFL uh, you know, we we might see this with Jim Harbaugh. We've seen this happen before. I think, you know, Doug Marone, right, went from college to the NFL. It happens. But the NFL hiring cycle is so insane and different than the college one. 
So you're in a situation where now Jim Harbaugh, if he gets hired, might get hired on like January 23rd, whereas the college hiring cycle happened on like December 2nd. That's crazy. And I don't think that's something that's palatable. Now, it's also worth noting that something that we're always going to say is, hey, you know what? Like, they need to fix this. They need to fix. But there's no they. <laughs> that's the issue. Yeah, who's going to fix nobody, it? <laughs> yeah, nobody's in charge. And and that's, of course, the fundamental thing. And we've we've harped on that for, you know, since we started doing this podcast that nobody's in charge. But I do think that that's uh, ultimately something that needs to change, whether it's through legislation, whether it's through the NCAA restructuring, whether it's through an organization like the College Football Playoff taking over. I think that everybody kind of acknowledges there needs to be, to the lowest extent, some level of uh, some level of national, you know, or, or total sports uh, governance, I guess you could call it. You know, I, I think that another part of this is let's let's shift a little and look forward to the 12 team playoff. If I'm not mistaken, next year, the national championship game will take place on January 20th in Atlanta. Yep. That is so much later than we are used to. Uh it's going to be something to have the national championship game following up inauguration day. That's going to be something. But <laughs> I, th- I think that the other piece of this is that I've always been a big proponent of the fact that programs should be judged on success for that program. You know, I, I don't think if you're an Arizona fan or if you're uh, an Oklahoma state fan or if you're, you know, whatever, right. I, I think that, to sit and try to judge every program on, well, are they going to win a national championship is just a dumb way to watch the sport, right? Like nobody, no, no, no San Diego State fan is like, well, we didn't beat Alabama this year. That, that's not how you judge success. But I think what becomes interesting in the 12-team playoff is how this will impact the coach hiring and firing cycle. Because you have a situation like, let's take James Franklin at Penn State. It's okay to be worse than Ohio State and Michigan in the Big Ten, but now you should be in the playoff every year with what you've built there, with the salary that you're getting, with the opportunity that you have. And once you get to the playoff, you also should be able to win one or two games. You should be able to play. You know, obviously this year they played Ole Miss and lost. That's a game that you should be winning more times than not. Uh, you know, maybe you're a six or a seven seed. You should be able to beat the number two team from the Big 12 or the number four team from the SEC. And so now I think that the idea of being pretty good and winning nine or ten games and playing in a bowl game that for whatever reason we've told ourselves we shouldn't care about, which is I think is silly, but that's another conversation. Well, now all of a sudden, I think that the bar for a lot of sort of more, I, I don't want to call them second tier jobs or mid-tier jobs, but jobs that are below the super duper elite of the elite or situations that are lower than that, right? All of a sudden, I think that those programs, I, I mean, again, I think you add like a Texas A&M into that mix. I think that you, add, I mean, even, even Texas right now, like with, with what they've done, uh, I, I think they all miss, right? Um, Washington and Oregon. Tennessee. Like these are teams, Tennessee, yeah. These are teams that should expect to compete for the playoff every single year or at least 
every other year or maybe like, you know, make it maybe once every three years. That That's what the expectation is going to be at these places. And that's a blessing in terms of I think it's more attainable than it was before. But oh boy, could that soon become a curse, too? Yeah, it's interesting, especially when you consider, I mean, with, with obviously Saban's kicked off a lot of the, this thinking um, how long ago it was when he was hired? I mean, in the sense he was hired in the BCS era when the pressure was to be one of the top two teams because you had to make it into the championship game, which was a higher set of pressure than there perhaps was prior to it when you just were trying to, you really were just trying to get to, if you're a Pac-12 team, Pac-10 team, pardon me, <laughs> trying to get to the, the Rose Bowl as well as the Big Ten. And, and, you know, if there was a chance you might win the championship, it really was a bit out of your hands. BCS era, a lot of stress to get to those top two spots. And then the four-team playoff, it got me thinking, because we talked about it earlier, Nick Saban made eight of the ten playoffs, which is just a stunning statement. And that was a level of expectation that he had created. For a lot of teams, though, it was this idea of getting to the playoff. You know, um, teams like Oklahoma kept getting to the playoff. Notre Dame would get to the playoff. Pac-12 had trouble getting to the playoff. It made me think about, like, who is benefiting the most? Clearly, I think we can say the SEC benefited the most, and that perhaps was the strength of the conference during that era. But we got, and towards the end, we started to also get a chance to taste how the portal in NIL also affected the way we thought of teams and who has a, an ability to get there and what we look for in the kinds of coaches who can put together teams. I mean, you could argue Kalen DeBoer was the uh, the ultimate version of that. You know, good coach, knew how to use the portal, got a couple of key players, and boom, they, they nearly made it all the way to the end. They got into the title game, and now he's head coach of Alabama, which was kind of an interesting passing of the torch. I It makes me now think about the 12-team playoff and how that's going to affect expectations because, we, as you mentioned, there's teams that are going to have a lot more pressure put on them. You know, for all the conversation that this is to the benefit of James Franklin – is it, you know, because as you pointed out, is it enough just to get into the playoff for him or does he have to win a game or two? Same, arguably, for Lane Kiffin. He's kind of the equivalent in the uh, in the SEC. And then you start thinking about certain coaches who were pleasing, the, I think, the fan base, pleasing the alumni, just occasionally getting the New Year's Six um, and doing well enough. And I started thinking about Mike Gundy, you know, like at Oklahoma State, are they going to now expect, you know, an at-large bid, which would be perhaps a little tougher being in the big 12 or like Mac Brown at North Carolina. Like they're in the, the big 12 and the ACC, but they're not quite the level of the sec and big 12, pardon me, the big 10 for fighting for that kind of at large bid, which will be again, a bit of a beauty contest, a bit of perception contest, something that arguably was affecting the, the 14 playoff in the sec. Um, and then, yes, yeah, second-tier programs, and I mean, I'm not trying to say that derogatorily, but the ones that are always constantly not quite able to make it to the top, the, you know, the Tennessee and the Texas A&M, or, or, you know, the forever expectations at Nebraska that that they will return the relevance. Is that going to put extra pressure on those guys uh, and coaches who go to those teams that, no, you really do have to be able to make it to the playoff on a regular basis? Um, you know, th the thing that that really struck me I think we have to reframe how coaches at power conferences talk about their expectations. Historically, I don't care who it was, you know, Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick, my God, Pete Carroll, whoever it was. It's like our goal is to just win the conference. Our goal is to win the Pac-12. Our goal is to win the Big 12, win the ACC, win the SEC. That almost goes out the window now because 
to win a conference means you're automatically in the playoff. The idea of winning a conference now has been subsumed by our goal is to make the playoff by winning the conference. That is at best the way you can phrase it. So the playoff, the 12 team playoff has absolutely changed expectations for head coaches. And I wonder if we're going to see a shift in how coaches talk about it. Um, you know, with Bill Belichick now available, it would be fun to see him end up at a college program uh, and have the same regard to a conference trophy as he did towards, you know, the NFL divisional trophies. Just kind of like, oh, hand it to him and immediately hands it off because his goal was always to to win the NFL playoff. For a lot of college <laughs> coaches, I mean, the top college coaches, Kalen DeBoer, I mean, or let's actually, let's set him aside. Let's say Kirby Smart, the current, you know, doyen of college football right now, the, the peak of them all. The expectation for Georgia is he's going to win the SEC and therefore go into the playoff. And perhaps that maybe that's the extension goal to win a few games and make it at least to the semifinal, if not the national championship. That's going to be another thing we're going to have to weigh in here. Expectations of how far we want to see people go into the playoffs because towards the end of Harbaugh, I mean, I'm saying like he's left with Harbaugh, you know, the last three times at the Apple, the first two times he didn't make it through the semifinal and and there were people like, Asking like, does he have enough to make it to the championship game? Which I felt was a little bit, a little bit ridiculous. But there he did. But at this point, now that we're going to have multiple rounds, is the expectation: can you get to at least a semifinal bid? Um, which coaches are going to be judged by that? And there's still going to be teams like a Wake Forest or um, or Stanford who, and I use Stanford because they had the greatest season uh, for this as an example where. Winning a conference championship was probably the best that they are expecting. Like, I still remember 2000, it was like 2000 when, you know, uh, Tyrone Willingham had an eight and three Stanford team that limped into the Rose Bowl and got absolutely blown out, you know, but they had won the conference. So there's going to be occasionally teams like that, that win a conference. And that really is the best thing they hope for. But for most of the power teams, it's going to be the playoffs are an absolute expectation. And the conference championship has almost become a secondary one. Well, I think I think I disagree with you. I think that when you start a season, I think that winning a conference is still the primary goal. And one of the reasons that I say that is because you are given such a tangible gift if you do win the conference. You get a bye in the college football playoff. You don't have to play a first round game. And you know, look, obviously a team like Georgia, they'll take their chances against a 12 or 11 seed, but it's another game that you have to play. And if you don't have to play that right, you have an opportunity to rest. You have an opportunity to get healthy. Uh, and so I think that there's a huge advantage to winning the conference. I, I look back at the 2022 season where obviously we had two teams make the college football playoff that did not win their conference. Well, if we went into that year with the 12-team format, TCU would have had to play in the first round. Ohio State. Would have had to play in the first round. Does TCU make a national championship game if they aren't the three seed? I, I don't know, right? I, I think they would have had a chance to do it if they were the three seed, but they would have been pushed out. They would have been, you know, a, a, the five seed or the six seed or something like that. And so I think that that path is much more difficult, you know, because this is the thing. I, I don't feel like people are appreciating enough the idea that. Every single team, you know, maybe outside of the number 12 seed, which will be likely a group of five team. This is the top 11 teams, at least in the country. And even if you're Georgia, even if you're Alabama, even if you're Ohio State or Michigan, that's a tough game. 
That is a tough game that you have to go and win, and then you have to win that level of game consistently. You have to win three or four of them in a row. And so I do think that there's a lot of benefit to, ha- to having to play one less than that. So when, when Kirby Smart goes into 2024, I absolutely expect him to say, our goal is to win the SEC. Because if you win the SEC as well, that puts you in as good a position as any to win the national championship. You're likely going to be the number one or number two seed if you win the Southeastern Conference. So I think that this format actually puts more focus on winning a conference championship than we've had for at least since the college football playoffs started. So you don't think like, for example, with over, and I grant that in the initial, probably near future, that's going to still be how people view it. But I wonder with four power conferences, presumably, um, as long as ACC stays together, we're going to get to a point where over time, maybe the shift of how people perceive it could go to the goal is getting the playoff. The goal is a CFP. And I wonder, especially with, as some have argued, conferences have lost their uh, their their identity somewhat with, you know, Cal and Stanford and the ACC and obviously the, the additions to the um, to the uh, the Big Ten that, you know, it is their they they become more of a vehicle to getting to that ultimate goal than being part of that ultimate goal, because so many of these decisions are about money, but also about, you know, perhaps, you know, buttressing yourself to to be able to go for that strength. One thing that does, I admit now I kind of wish more of the conferences kept divisions in some way, only because I was hoping we'd still have that chance for that wacky conference championship game where the, the favorite team gets like that. For example, let's go with, you know, rest in peace, big 10 divisions, but you know, where maybe a Wisconsin does somehow upset in Ohio state. And so we get a team with like four or five losses that suddenly gets into the playoff and, you know, that happens in, you know, the NFL gets all kinds of silly stuff like that. But can you imagine that would be, I still remember, I, I would love to have seen the equivalent. Was it? Yeah. 2011. Yeah. 2011 USC, where they were not allowed to go to the postseason. So UCLA, which had a losing record or at least close to a losing record with six wins, ended up in the Pac-12 championship. And imagine had they won, they didn't win. Then they lost their bowl game. So I think they became the first team to ever finish the season six and eight. Um, but the, imagine if that team had somehow made it through. We're, we've lost that because now, granted, it's it's going to get better quality football, but it's going to be the two highest rated or however they're, each conference is doing it in their respective title games. But we, we are also kind of, I mean, that's a great question. Are conference title games really just an extension of the playoff for the P4? I mean, that's almost how you have to look at it. They are They are just part of the, they are part of the process of getting in with, of course, he added benefit that there's going to be probably a regular number of conference championship losers that are still going to end up in the playoff regardless. It just means they're going to play a first round game. Yeah, well, and I think a- another way to think of it is like I think every single year we can assume the Big Ten and SEC. We can assume. We don't have to pretend that the Big Ten and SEC winner and loser are both going to make the college football playoff. So they're playing for a bye every year. That's what they're going to be playing for. I think usually one of the two losers between the Big 12 and ACC will get in as well. I I think it's very likely that those two conferences combined will put in three teams. That would be my expectation. Uh, Some years it's going to be a Big 12 team. Some years it's going to be an ACC team. It just depends. Um, I do, But yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, in in a lot of ways it is an extension. Like you said, I, I mean, and it also 
buys you a buy, right? That's, that's a huge deal. And so I do think that there's still going to be a lot of juice for these games. Like, you know, some people are like, well, why would Georgia play their best players in the SEC title game? If, you know, like, why not just rest them if they're going to be in the playoff anyway? And I mean, my answer is I just think that there's a lot of tangible benefit to not having to play another game against a top 11 opponent that could eliminate you from the season and eliminate you from the postseason. So I do think there's going to be a lot of juice with these conference championship games. Now this is, this gets to a bigger picture point, which is that like winning a conference of 10 teams is just a much more reasonable and realistic goal than winning a conference of 18 teams. Like I I think that like, I'm going to be curious how much, involvement and excitement there is from like the middle class of these conferences when like it's basically impossible in the sec or big 10 to come from the middle and win like it's just the path is so hard now um but that's that's more of a conversation for another day to take us back a little bit to the cycle and the calendar another thing i'm going to be really interested in is so one thing for example is Ohio State would have been in the college football playoff this year in a 12-team field. So does Kyle McCord stick around in that scenario? Does he transfer before? I mean, like, we haven't seen a scenario where good players have left before the playoff. And, And another thing to mention is their window, I think, would reopen as soon as their season is over. So like they would be able to play in the playoff game and then transfer. But the issue is if you're a quarterback like Kyle McCord, are you worried that the spots are filled up by the time that you're entering the transfer portal? Like, do you want to enter earlier? Do you, it's a strange situation. And I mean, again, these, these transfer windows were obviously put in place so that we wouldn't have to do everything all the time. But when teams have such disparate calendars, Again, does it end up putting a player like Kyle McCord in a situation where he has to consider not participating as a starting quarterback in the college football playoff? Yeah, well, it really does feel like, and and I always caution people who who ask like a little who get worried about him. Like we're we're still learn. It seems like everyone's still learning as they go along. I mean, we still haven't entirely figured out the best way to use the portal. No one has. I mean, there will be that year to year like, wow, that 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 team really used it well, but then. You'll see another team where it doesn't quite have the same results or NIL. I mean, heaven knows everyone's still learning how NIL works and Florida State apparently is getting punished for it. You know, we, we no one's even sure how that works. So the calendar, I think, is going to have to it, I could see the calendar shifting as they move along as long as. And I'm hoping and I think the powers that be have the ability to say we're still learning it. We're, we're not, we don't have the right answer yet. Let's shift this to match the extended playoff. But. Given how things change in college football, there'll probably be one or two really clunky years where what you're talking about happens, and then they go back and fix it. Unfortunately, now we're not going to have Nick Saban to be the one initially yelling about it, and that causes everyone to kind of fall in line. I mean, that's why everyone thinks he'd be a wonderful hypothetical commissioner of college football if there ever was one, because everyone's going to trust him on you know how things should be done. And he's going to, I still love it. It's going to be that paternalistic thing he kind of did. Well, if you want to change the rules to this, you're going to regret it, but we're going to do it the best way we can in Alabama. I mean, he's going to be the guy to do that with everything. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think this calendar is probably, and you know, one thing that struck me, I mean, I, um, 
you know, I'm on good terms with a with an, a current NFL assistant coach, and I was, you know, he's now done. His season's done. They didn't go to the playoff, but um, he's like, I'm gonna go. Like, I don't even talk to him about football. He does not want to talk about football at this point in the season. He's like, I'm gonna go relax, enjoy my time, have a break, whatever. And I thought about. You know, so many college football coaches don't really get that opportunity because, I mean, this cycle, it's always be recruiting, always be, as you said, you know, the next transfer portal windows coming, you know, later on. But there's going to be back channel conversations. Everyone's going to be kind of having chats. You know, Alabama wants to now probably backfill some of the people they may have lost. They can't really do it right now because none of the other teams can lose. Like those players can't leave. They're going to be constantly in that conversation. And I believe it was uh, Kirby Smart, but other head coaches have mentioned that the burnout is going to eventually take place and that, you know, for a sport that is now finally, I think, doing a fairly good job of embracing the idea of mental health for players, coaches, especially these these young guys, and and you know, you can we we talk so much about the top teams that can afford to pay their coaches so much that even a head coach going to another team to be a position coach can be a comparable salary. But for a lot of programs, like if you're, you know, a G5 assistant coach, you're not getting a whole lot of money. And, and and not to say like at FCS, they're they're also working like really well. They're working hard and they're not getting that kind of money. And the, what it's demanding on some of these guys is incredible year round. I do wonder, and this is again, another conversation I've had with this, this same assistant, the overall, somebody pointed out like the overall life expectancy for football coaches at these high levels is actually lower than average. And I'm going to, I could see the stress that we're putting them under is a part of that. And again, I know, I do know, and I do acknowledge the counter argument, which is especially in the top level. I mean, you're getting paid a ton of money. I mean, there's, there's surgeons that work in the emergency room every year, you know, every day that get close to that level of salary. And they're also under a lot of stress. I mean, I accept that, but at the same time, this is getting a little bit crazy, even for college football, even for a sport that uh, that is theoretically started as a hobby for people. You know, when, when we think about college football, it's like athletics. I, I do worry about that. And I wonder if we'll see some shifts also just for the mental health of the people who are coaching it. No, I mean, and I think that people, especially on the Internet, like there is obviously this thought that, well, you get paid all this money. And so, like, we should just accept that things are terrible for you know what we ask some of these coaches to do in terms of how on we ask them to be the time we ask them to spend away from their family like this is supposed to be college amateur athletics right now we can obviously have the conversation that it's not fully amateur but like imagine like you said your your nfl assistant coach friend if he had to like convince his players that they should stay Every year after they leave, you know, that's not their job. That's the job of a general manager. That's the, the job of a director of player personnel. That's not like the wide receiver coach's job to say, hey, you know, uh, Justin Jefferson, please, please don't just leave because you feel like it because you think that maybe someone right now will give you more money, even though you're under contract, right? Like this is not normal. And we can say that it's bad, even though they get paid handsome salaries to do it the other thing too is and let's maybe take our focus and kind of look at some of these these jobs that have of course opened i mean everybody can point to you know alabama's going to pay ryan grubb more than two million dollars to be an assistant coach most likely right uh that they they hired away buffalo's sitting head coach like this stuff is 
obviously good for these guys. I'll tell you who this isn't good for. Like, Buffalo's wide receivers coach or defensive line coach is probably making more like, you know, low six figures. Not bad money. Like, nobody should feel like they're living in poverty. But also, that is not like, oh, I lost my job and it's no big deal kind of money either. And those are the people whose lives are really kind of flipped around by all of this because there's not as many openings right now. A lot of these jobs have been made. A lot of these hires have been made. A lot of opportunities for advancement are gone right now. And uh, again, we have a couple of openings right now. Uh, Like I said, we're recording uh, middle of the day on Wednesday. Some of these might be filled by the time that you hear this. We don't have control over the college football hiring cycle, but Buffalo, South Alabama, San Jose State, all open right now. Arizona and Washington were open or just filled. Like, it's a lot of movement to be happening in the middle of January when you're kind of supposed to be looking forward to the season. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing, as we kind of look into the 12-team playoff era and the nature of the transfer portal and coaching moves is how much we're going to... I wonder how Machiavellian it's going to get. I wonder how, how you know, because people are going to be looking out for themselves. And I completely respect that, particularly the players, because for the longest time, they got the short end of the stick when coaches move. But how much of the coaching hiring is now going to also shift to can you get someone and bring some players with them? I mean, I think the 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 first poster child for it was Lincoln Riley t- coming over and bringing Caleb Williams and a couple of other guys with him. Because suddenly, not only was USC great, but it was the same the same guy that that came with Lincoln Riley. And I don't get me wrong, I doubt I that USC hired Lincoln Riley and and like hinged Caleb Williams coming with him on it. I think Lincoln Riley had enough of a a reputation at that point to be worth hiring. But are we going to see more of that? Like if you were, because that, that, that's that been a conversation is, you know, uh, Jed Fish going to bring Fita and, and a couple of those receivers with them. Sounds like they might stay when we'll see everyone, you know, again, I'm always very cynical and skeptical until people are, we're already playing the next season and those guys stayed, you know? Um, but uh, I wonder how much of that we're going to see, how much, and, and it gets into an interesting question too, because with how, with how college football again is is not quite as organized, will we get some really angry teams, angry boosters starting to sue each other, you know, for uh, sue another team, potentially frivolous lawsuit, but it'll gum up the works, um, or I wouldn't say frivolous, but but meritless uh, that might end up being having no merit to just try and take revenge, like you know, interference with another team. I mean, can you have tortious interference of uh, the business affairs of another college football program because you hired their coach who then took all the players with them? I don't know. I mean, we all we all wonder that. And uh, I people have tried. To, I think we've talked about it in a previous show. People have tried to come up with ways of keeping players at their home base, kind of keeping them from following a head coach. But 
I, that one doesn't sit well with me because, I mean, if you are a player who went to play for a coach and that coach leaves and he still wants you, by all means, follow him. I think that's great. But how much of that are we going to see weaponizing those moves where suddenly you're going to not only see a coach move, but raid the pantry on their way out? Well, I, I do. I do take uh, issue with one thing that you said. Uh, this trend obviously started with Zach Kitley and Bailey Zappi going from Houston Christian University to Western Kentucky. They're the real pioneers here. But I think that, you know, look, there, there is not right now a legal way to prevent this. We, you know, we are we are seeing all these plans proposed uh, of, oh, well, you know, maybe we should ban players from being able to follow their coaches to a place. Maybe we should ban where, uh, you know, whether players can enter the portal. Well, the way that you do that is by collectively bargaining a contract and treating your players as employees. Yeah. And that's not something that at this point uh, anybody has been yeah, the interested box in all doing. Yes. So. That's the real answer to this situation, or even if it's a collective bargaining, even if it doesn't result in employee status, I think that it still requires a level of collective bargaining and it requires uh, a representative agency for the players and for college football as a whole as well. So that's, I think, a bigger picture conversation. I think we could get to that point in the next couple of years, but it's not going to happen in the next two to three. We're talking the next 10 to 20 when we're talking about that kind of conversation. I do think that, uh, look, there are ways for schools to fight back as well. We are seeing right now that uh, that Arizona, you know, it seems like their NIL collective is trying to stand up right now, right? I, I think that Brent Brennan's come in. I, the first clip that I saw after his press conference was Brent Brennan's wife, who, by the way, uh, new coach at Arizona, his wife is an Arizona alum. His brother played at Arizona and the first clip that I saw was Brent Brennan's wife uh, going out on the golf cart with uh, with Noah Fafita, Arizona's star quarterback. So, like, the pitch is already on to try to keep these guys around. And that's part of the job, too, right? Like, that that is part of the job is when you hire somebody, you do have to have an understanding of whether they're going to be able to make a pitch to keep your roster together and keep your players around. We can have conversations about uh, guys following their coaches through wherever but like plenty don't plenty choose to stay and plenty choose to to you know stay with the university that they're at and part of this does come down to you know you do have to make a coach that understands at least the general you know tenor of your roster and i think that you know let's talk about some of these hires real quick so Washington decides to stay in the old Pac-12. They take Jed Fish from Arizona. From what it sounds like, so he's going to be paid $7.75 million a year, a really, really good salary, uh, even for like a Big Ten level coach. It, from what it sounded like, Arizona did not make him signing him to a new contract as much of a priority as maybe they thought that they should have. They couldn't. That was their problem. <laughs> they, right. They well, misplaced $240 million. Well, they didn't misplace it. The, the, they, 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 budget, they, they came up with a budget <laughs> yeah. that had $240 million they never had. Yeah. And so the school's got bigger problems right now. This couldn't happen at a worse time for them. So they were planning on upping his salary into the mid fives. So like they, they were going to give him a raise um, and they were going to try to keep him around. But like you said, they've got some bigger fish to fry right now. Uh, now, it, it's worth saying, right? Like they're not going to make they're not going to avoid paying a coach market value because of this because that money comes from boosters and outside sources anyway but 
the question is, okay, if you're Jed Fish and you're sitting here, there's a hiring freeze right now. There's travel freezes. I don't know how that impacts your recruiting budget. I don't know how that impacts your ability to retain coaches. We just saw his defensive coordinator leave for a position coach job at the University of Texas. Now, there's there's some conversation that actually Brent, Brennan might try to bring Johnny Nansen back from Texas. We'll see if that ends up happening. But there's a lot of complications there as to why maybe Arizona's in a unique position right now. Again, like like I said, Noah Fafita, uh, Tetraroya, McMillan, they've had conversations about coming back. If they come back, I think a lot of players will come back as well. Uh, but looking at Washington, very different style of coach than than what they did before. Right, uh, Jed Fish comes from more of an NFL background. He was hired after being quarterbacks coach of the New England Patriots back in 2020 and took over at Arizona. And um, but and he brought kind of a pro style mindset into it. Like he kind of did what uh, what Herm Edwards said he was going to do, but like in a normal way and not an insane way where they they kind of view it as a very much like uh, player acquisition, NFL development type factory. That's how they wanted to develop things. And and also with some creative scheme and, and concepts. Uh, so I think that that's going to fit Washington pretty well. Um, and I think that for me, my only surprise was that Jedfish moved right now. He's a Florida alum. He's a Florida guy. He's from that area. I thought that maybe he would stick around and wait to see if that opens next year. But Washington's a really good job, uh, you know, regardless of the fact that they lost their coach to the University of Alabama. And so I, I, I like the hire. What do you think? Oh, I think it's a decent hire. I think Jedfish has that ability to coach um, in, well, it's so funny to say coach in the Pac-12. I mean, coach right now in the Big Ten, I think Washington will give him just the, the next step up of support and facilities and the ability to support him. Again, what Arizona really got caught with their pants down with what was going on and the rest of the campus. I think he's a good hire. My only concern, and I know I've heard it voiced elsewhere, is will he then bolt for Florida if the job were to open up? Granted, he could completely kill his opportunity if he doesn't continue a certain level of success, success in Washington. Because Washington, excuse me, Washington has historically been one of the top Pac-10, Pac-8. Like, it's historically been one of the top teams in that conference. I mean, battling with USC historically, but they've got a national championship. They've had plenty of Rose Bowls. They've had plenty of opportunities to reach that height. So the expectations at Washington are certainly historically higher than they ever were at Arizona. I think he's a good hire. Um, but it, again, he also has a tough uh, a tough act to follow because he's not going to have Penix there anymore. Um, he's, he's not going to have the same level of, of caliber of players that briefly helped you know, you could argue really were the reason why this Washington team went as far as they did, but he's proven he can do it. I, I, if they'll give him the patience Arizona gave him not, I'm not saying he's going to have as terrible a season to open up because he inherited really awful situation at, at Arizona. I think he's a good hire and I think he can continue them going. He isn't, you know, necessarily a, a, a sexy hire, but uh, that's not necessarily what you need. And um, it'll be interesting to see how he goes. I'm actually really curious to see how Brent Brennan's going to do replacing him at Arizona because arguably it's kind of, it was kind of a weird side. Again, as you said, people wanted him. His, his, he's got connections to the school through his extended family. Um, he's also the cousin of Colt Brennan. I remember when I finally found that out, I was absolutely fascinated. I did not realize they were related, but uh, the one concern I have there is if he, uh, you know, 
is he has he done enough to prove that he can get Arizona to be a competitive team in the Big 12? Because, I mean, right now, now he's at a stage where the playoffs are a possibility. San Jose State, to be charitable, extremely outside chance of ever getting the playoff as the, B, as the G5 candidate. We, we all, or G6, however you want to phrase it, candidate. But at Arizona, now he's actually, that's something that's on the table. Can he win the Big 12? Can he get the Wildcats into that spot? Which, certainly historically, they've made, been able to make their way into the New Year's Six before. They, can they now do that under Brent Brennan? And seeing what he did at San Jose State, it's always tricky. It's a tough place to win. Getting seven wins there is a bit of a triumph. He had a great season under the pandemic year when kind of we were, it, everything's hard to gauge in the pandemic year. But I'm not sure. I mean, and it, it says something that you get somebody who can do a lot with little to a school like Arizona that just had all their financial issues. You kind of then, that's not quite, I know that's not how they want to frame it because he was a finalist for the job when Jed Fish got it. But um, I'm curious to see how he follows there too because we can't discount the fact that Arizona now is also a team that is is fighting for a playoff spot. I'm very curious to see how these two work out. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is when this hire happened, I think a lot of people jumped online and were like, they're hiring the 34 and 48 San Jose State coach, uh, which one I think shows a, like just a general lack of understanding of what San Jose State is and has been and what he's working with. The other part, too, is, you know, he was hired in 2017 without uh, any head coach experience. I think he'd been a co-OC like one year of his career. So he was very green when he was hired as a head coach. And in his first two years, he went three and 22 and two and 14 in conference. And since then, he's been really good. And even if you want to put that pandemic season aside, like at San Jose State, it's five and seven, five and seven, seven and five, seven and six. It's the first time that they've had back-to-back winning seasons at San Jose State since 1992. So like, I think that Regardless of whether that pandemic season was real or not, like he's brought stability and he's brought consistency and he's leveraged it into something. The other thing you have to like if you are Arizona is that he's done a great job with quarterbacks. Chevin Cordero uh, has been his quarterback, I believe, both of the last two years. A really, really good player. Nick Starkle, he was able to to develop into some of his best seasons. I think that he was also Josh Love's coach and did a good job with him a couple years ago. So if you're Noah Fafita, I think you have to like what his track record is with quarterbacks and passing offenses. Uh, the hires are going to be important. The staff is going to be important. I think, you know, we mentioned some of Arizona's kind of university-wide issues. I think that made this hire and job kind of just a little weird, right? Like even for me, I put together, uh, I, I was part of putting together our candidates list for Arizona. Not a lot of obvious candidates for this job right like both their offensive and defensive coordinator were under consideration uh you know it's just like this is one of those jobs because they've been a they've been a bad team for most of the past 15 years outside of like some really nice years under rich rod and like it's just not a place that's had a lot of consistent success and so i think to get somebody who's been a head coach who's done more with less, like you said, who's brought consistency and stability to a place, and also who I think is poised to be able to keep the roster together mostly if he can get some hires right. There's a lot to like. We'll see if it comes through. You know, this is something that gets funny because we always think about when you really start watching college football, sometimes 
um, determines your views on certain teams. So I got into college football when Arizona was the desert swarm team, when they were really good. Um, when in 1998, that first season of the BCS, there were so many, the ramifications people don't talk about because that final regular season, what well, was conference championship weekend, but the PAC 10 didn't have a conference championship game. So they UCLA BCS number two plays that game against Miami, which was a hurricane makeup game. Miami pulls the upset, knocks UCLA out of the BCS and Kansas State lost, knocked them out of BCS and Florida State was a sacrificial lamb against Tennessee. But what happened when UCLA lost was they suddenly went to the Rose Bowl, which to the horror of Arizona, they were going to go and they still never did. That was going to be their what would have been their only close chance to get into the Rose Bowl game. And they didn't get to go because UCLA lost. Um so it, it, it's just fascinating, but I've always been thinking like, wow, Arizona's a scary team. And then over the years, that certainly they they completely uh, they completely kind of returned to something that that has been a struggle for a lot of those programs. You know, before we wrap up and and knowing, acknowledging there are at least three openings as we're talking about this, and potentially a big fourth opening that's going to be coming up. Who do you think are if you don't necessarily want to say your ultimate winner, but who have been your top tier hires? in this coaching carousel cycle, which does stretch back quite far when we think about how many months have passed. Uh, what year is it again? I don't even know like what or who or I, I, I don't even know. That's a good question. I think that one that comes to mind for me is Jonathan Smith going to Michigan State from Oregon State. He has done an unbelievable job. I think that just with that slightly more resourced uh, type program, I think that's going to be huge for them. We saw them jump in and get an Aiden Shiles from the portal, right? Like they, they've done a, a good job in the portal, adding some, some real talent. So that's a hire that I like a lot. I think that's going to end up working a little off kind of a little off key. And by the way, I actually think that this cycle for the most part, like. It's not spectacular, but there just there just been some really good hires, I think. And I think that even some of the hires that were just made, like Jed Fish, like Kalen DeBoer, uh, and like Brent Brennan, like it's just like quiet competence, uh, which I like a lot. I'm excited to see what Fran Brown can do at Syracuse. Georgia DB's coach, one of the best recruiters in the nation. Uh, people joke that he's the king of Jersey with the way that he recruits that state. Uh, we've already seen some early results with them landing some big-time players in the transfer portal, so I'm excited to see. We'll, we'll see what Kyle McCord can do in that offense. Uh, and I think that you also have to look at Kurt Signetti at Indiana. I mean, he he did such a great job during his time at James Madison. Again, just adds a level of quiet competence. So, Honestly, there are very few hires I didn't like this year. Like, I mean, again, Mike Elko at Texas a I love that. Kalen DeBoer at Alabama. It's unique, but I like it. Like, it's it's been, I think, a pretty just solid year overall. That I, I mean, I think back to, like, the last couple of years, usually there's one or two that are just like, what the hell is that? And I don't <laughs> feel like that really happened. The Charlie Weiss, the Kansas award. Like that was, <laughs> that seemed to be, to me, that's the, uh, the marquee of like, what really? And then it went exactly as expected. Um, you know, do you think Washington is somewhat annoyed that Jonathan Smith came off the board when he did, because would he have been someone they would have rather, would he have been their go-to guy had they had the opportunity to go after him? 
I think he would have been under consideration. I think that him and Jed Fish probably would have both uh, been candidates for them. So it's it's a small loss. I don't think it's like a crazy loss. The other thing I'll say too, and and I mean obviously like East Lansing is a pretty big city, but like I got a chance to talk to Jonathan Smith uh, earlier uh, this year when I was writing a story about Oregon State and Washington State, and like I think he likes a little bit of a lower key quality of life. Like, I think that he I, th- I think that like for him, he liked that he could be in a place with few distractions at Oregon State. Now, obviously, he was offensive coordinator at Washington as well. So he has experience uh, under Chris Peterson. But I think that Michigan State might fit him just a little bit better. And I think that Jed Fish might fit Washington just a little bit better, though. I mean, he absolutely would have been maybe top of my list if I was hiring out Washington as well. Yeah, I, I like a lot of your your choices for for good hires. Only one I'm going to throw in, and this is more of I just liked interviewing the couple of times I've talked to him and Willie Fritz at Houston. I think it's more that I just want to see him continue proving yep. that he can succeed at any level he goes to. Um, but I think that's a good spot to kind of slowly wrap this up. Uh, this is the College Football Survivor Show. We always love the fact that you all join us for this, and I wanted to thank all of you for joining us in our conversations. I wanted to thank our producer, Joey Aliberti. Be sure, if you get a chance, to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And find us, check us out on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show. He's Shahan J. Araja. You can find his work at CBSSports.com and Shahan J. Araja on X and TikTok. I'm Bob Akairi. Thanks for joining us. The College Football Survivor Show where playoff survival is always on the line.